After a decade of mixed critical and mostly little commercial success, Michael Mann would transform his career in the 90s. Some six years on from Manhunter, he would direct Last of the Mohicans to both massive critical and commercial success, cementing himself as a force to be reckoned with from the early 90s onwards. I'm Andy Blockley. And I'm Duncan McLeish. And welcome to Opera Omnia. to episode four of Opera Omnia. So tonight we're going to go to the Michael Mann, another change of genre for Michael Mann, Last of the Mohicans. He's a chameleon of genres. He is, he doesn't mess around does he? No. <laughs> so we've had crime, we've had serial killer, I, I don't know what the keep was. <laughs> we've had the keep. <laughs> we've had the keep um, and now we've got a sort of action adventure drama set in the uh, sort of French Red Indian, are they called Red Indians? Is that racist? I think it might be, but we're we're British, so we don't care. Trust me, nothing that we see on this show will top how obnoxious the English people are in this movie. <laughs> My God! <laughs> oh Jesus! I mean, we're English people, cunts anyway. Like in for our history, like I don't know who the fuck they think they are, to be honest. But this movie. Just cements it. Jesus. Written by an American, I think. I think it was written by an American. I'm not at the time, but while while things were still raw between our nations, um, and yeah, it was adapted from a novel into a screenplay for a cinema in the thirties, and then adapted again for this movie. So yeah, it's fine. It's not. It's accurate. Like <laughs> I, I don't dispute that. Every single person in, in this movie that is playing an Englishman that speaks the way they do and the words that come out of their mouth are probably 100% historically accurate. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I, really, I really can't. Uh, but they are. Every single one of them is obnoxious. And if you're Scottish, you already have like this inbuilt, slightly xenophobic attitude towards England. It's kind of passed down from father to son, from mother right, to daughter. Um, and it's always in the background, but it's just a tiny little bit. But when you watch movies like this, that's when it starts like this or Rob Roy, and my back starts to get pressed. Just not a bit of like motherfucking English. <laughs> I'm the same when I'm English. <laughs> what a bunch of cunts, honestly. Yeah, but they are all obnoxious, every single one of them. But that's not what we're here to talk about. That is not what we're here to talk nope. about. We're here to talk about The Last of Mo- the Mohicans, which. Like in your intro, you you kind of touched on the fact that you know we're over a decade into man's career. This is this is over ten years since Thief, and all these movies, regardless how we've felt of them or how critics have felt about them, none of them were really classed as successes at all. Okay. And then we reached this movie, 
and this movie is a huge success. I mean, it, it goes to, to number one in the Billboard um, or box office charts when it gets released. It's the 17th highest grossing movie of 1992, which might sound like, oh, well, it was only 17. 1992 had a lot of really good movies, including A Certain Silence of the Lambs, so that's all I'm saying there. Um, so it was the 17th highest grossing movie, and it couldn't be any more different a genre of... of of anything that you would expect Michael Mann to do. There is no there isn't really any mannerisms at all in this movie, except from a couple of camera angles, which we'll get on to. Um, and a lot of slow-mo. There is a lot of slow-mo. You know what? I, I, there's a lot of slow-mo and there's a lot of running because there's no cars, Andy, so we can't focus on the cars. We're going to focus on people running in slow-mo. True. I suppose you're going to get there quicker if you run it anyway, so it's, <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> to do it that way. It's, um, the thing about this is... It, he gets wide praise for his cinematography in this movie um, and there's a lot of the techniques in this movie he has used in previous movies where his cinematography wasn't praised so find it quite interesting <laughs> it's like people are like look at he's, he's, he's revamped his style no he's not really <laughs> always there mate yeah just less neon nobody, nobody noticed is all I, I think mean that's it. you know it sticks out more, doesn't it, here, because of the landscape, the type of movie that it is, you know, big sweeping shots of, mm. uh, you know, just outdoors, basically. And if it's done well, you know, you've got waterfalls, you've got woods and forests and big open spaces, it's going to be more obvious yeah. than probably some of the subtle stuff in Thief, which isn't subtle to me or you, but maybe it's, uh, you know, not that noticeable for people that aren't specifically looking for yeah. cinematography. Because a lot of people won't, you know. I mean, when I talk to friends about films... Cinematography is very rarely one of the things people ever seem to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think you probably have to be quite into your movies to really notice stuff like that. You know, people they'll realise it looks nice, but they kind of won't. I don't, you know, I've, I've spoken to people that don't know. We don't really know what the term cinematography is. Yeah. You know, they'll go to say, "Oh, it's really not." You know, it was like the pictures were good. And I go, "Cinematography." Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's what. <laughs> and that's what it means when it's well shot. And they go, "All oh, right." Didn't realise. Yeah, so this is just another example. Um, yeah, and as, I think I think as well it's another great example of how Michael Mann has, in fact, every single movie he's put out up to this point, the score is imperative. You know, the music in this movie makes this movie. See, if you stripped the, mu the music out of this movie, it would not have half the emotional weight or impact at all. Um, and it's the same with all his other movies. Every single one of them has been underpinned by a really good score, whether it was Tangerine Dream in his first two movies, or a score collectively put together by artists who just sound like Tangerine Dream. <laughs> yeah, so it might as well have been Tangerine Dream. In Manhunter, but by the time we swing out to this one, I mean, it, it's, it's we're moving away from synths, obviously, because there are no place for synths. Obviously. Can you imagine? It would have been a very different film. <laughs> I would have loved it. I would, I would have just been ballsy as fuck and just shoved it in there. Um, just that. I'm just having, I'm having fucking sense. Uh, but the the, the composer uh, Trevor Jones um, and Randy Edelman um, really craft a pretty phenomenal kind of romantic, almost kind of there's almost a kind of Gallic feel to it, um, that's Gaelic or Gaelic for the Americans not yeah, garlic yeah. as in the thing you cook with or ward away vampires um, yeah th there is a kind of very 
kind of folksy Celtic sort of vibe going through the soundtrack, which I just think makes the movie. I think it like really. I think if I would almost want to see someone put out like the dramatic scenes of this movie and strip the score out altogether and just see how little impact they actually have. Um, and that's not to take away from the acting or all the rest. Everything is framed meticulously with that precision that Michael Mann brings to cinema and the score is just as important to him as the camera position and what the actors are doing. And it all adds up and you get one of those elements wrong. This movie could be, for lack of a better word, cheesy. Um, yeah. Which I think it manages to avoid being, even though from this point onwards, every single period war set and drama movie set during some sort of time frame will have a score very similar to this and some sort of romantic sweeping thing going on. I'm looking at you, Braveheart. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> You're not a fan of Braveheart, are you? For we, we, we've spoken about this. I don't know if I've ever spoken about it on here. I've certainly spoken about it on other podcasts. I don't really like Braveheart. Um, and it's not because I'm Scottish, because every person I know, pretty much, that is Scottish, really likes Braveheart. Um, I just dislike it. And the reason I dislike it is because it is factually inaccurate to the point of stupidity in there. And Can you c- see past that though? Because for me, if I don't know that it's factually inaccurate, obviously that's not going to bother me. Um, I don't. I think when you grow up in Scotland, I don't know what it's like in England, but when you grow up in Scotland in high in, in primary school, you do like historical projects on the wars of independence um, yeah. up here. So you you're not well versed, but you know. You know about things like the Battle of Stirling Bridge and how ina- inaccurate it's put across in, in the movie. Like, seriously okay. inaccurate. Um, yeah. And just, like, the the, the 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 kind of romantic relationship they press into that movie um, to try and almost mimic Last of the Mohicans on some level doesn't yeah. exist because the French princess that he is infatuated with was like six months old when William Wallace was doing all these battles so you trying to say he was a paedophile or it's what, just... what I'm saying is what I'm saying is they never met and yeah, if they exactly. did meet she was a baby yeah so it's stuff like that and it's like why do that I mean William Wallace's story is fascinating enough it's, yeah. you know, it's richly fascinating and the whole history of that time period could make for a fantastic movie about, you know, the cause of independence back at that time, of which William Wallace was the, the spearhead and the focal point. Certainly wasn't the main man like the movie plays him out to be. But no. I mean he's you know, he was certainly one of the, the more pivotal members of that movement. That's fascinating enough. You know what I mean? That's like that's hugely fascinating and the like the way he died is pretty much spot on to what happens in the film. I don't know if he cried out freedom. Um because yeah, they, I mean I know they took his penis away in the real life, but obviously that would probably be a bit much for a fifteen certificate movie to Yeah, well yeah. <laughs> Apart from that, yeah, pretty brutal. It's, it's, yeah. That's how he was hung, drawn, and quartered, and his his body parts were sent to the the furthest parts of the United Kingdom, um, and then his head was mounted on a spike outside London um, as a as a stern warning to anyone who would dare challenge the authority of the you know the the English king. So I mean that story's fascinating enough. Why they have to insert so much bullshit into it? I, I know why they do it. Is to get people to buy into it, 
um, who aren't Scottish and want to just see a movie about a lot of smelly men wearing kilts just shagging sheep and killing people. I understand <laughs> that, right? But that's what it was like. That's why I like Rob Roy, even though Rob Roy's not <laughs> factually accurate. It doesn't... Rob Roy knows exactly what it is. Braveheart's trying to be something that it isn't. Um, and Last of the Mohicans is partly to blame from that, I think, because Last of the Mohicans is, you know, based on a book. Um, so it's based on, I would imagine, a work of fiction, considering the book was written, I think, 100 years after the events in this quote-unquote movie. Uh, I don't know yeah. why quote-unquote movie is a movie. Um, but, you know, and even even then, I've, I've never read the book, but I've heard that the book is pretty badly written you know not not quite 50 shades of grey badly written but it's not it's not a great book um, yeah. and you know man took his kind of screenwriting off the adaptation that had already been done in the 30s so you know i i can see where they were going with this and you can put like a huge kind of romantic story to give it weight in this movie and it totally works and it works for me in this movie it doesn't work for me in braveheart which was a long way of saying that i don't really like braveheart <laughs> yeah, see, I'm the other way around. It doesn't work for me at all in this, really. It doesn't? No. Oh, oh, oh we're going to get in it. It's going to be good. I, I thought we were on the same page with this movie. It would appear no. not. There's quite a few things that don't work. You know, I'm not enamoured with the score. Um, I saw it literally <laughs> did nothing for me. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, right, Andy. <laughs> What's the last of the Mohicans about? Right, it takes place in 1757 during the French-Indian War. Um, it's basically three guys, I think, I don't know, frontiersmen, um, are basically travelling home um, and they kind of come across a white woman, I suppose. I mean, the, the, the guy played by Daniel Day-Lewis, he's like an adopted son, is he? Um, yes. I, don't know, I don't know what's happened to his parents. Um, but he's, he's, he's kind of... Yeah, he's basically... He is a frontiersman who... Yeah. You know, his family was butchered. I I would imagine by Indians, um, and he is adopted by the last two surviving members of the Mohican tribe, uh, who yeah. is a father and son. So he becomes like basically blood brother to the guy's son and adopted son to, to, I think his name's Genghis Cook or something like that. He's he's yeah. a, a proper name, um, and he is you know for all intents and purposes at the end of this movie the last of the Mohicans. He even says it, which kind of just just in case you forgot what the movie's called, <laughs> he'll say the line. Um, but yeah, so he's uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is very much though uh, you know he's a he's a frontiers man, which explains his look and his accent. Even though I don't think frontiers men spoke American. Um, I think they still spoke English uh, with an English accent. In this movie, no, he's a frontiersman. Yeah. Um, so you got these two two ladies um, basically going to go to this fort. Their fort to join their fourth. Their fort to join their father. Um, yeah. And on the way, they kind of the the group they're with gets ambushed by another group of like Red Indians. So obviously, aren't the Mohicans? Are they? They're almost like the villain tribe. Yeah, so they are. Um, this is where it gets really, really interesting, right? So, the main guy, the main villain guy, um, Magua, uh, as he's called, um, is actually Huron tribe, but okay. he he tells a story about how his family was all murdered and he, he kind of he got adopted by the 
some other tribe. <laughs> it's like so basically he is a Huron, but he wants to. He kind of lost favor with them, and through getting revenge, essentially he will be able to get his way back into the Huron tribe. And the Huron were very sympathetic towards the French. Um, so basically, America at this point is the frontier people, who are Americans. Um, yeah. The American Indians, who are original Americans, but many different tribes. Um, and you have the British, who have colonised part of America. And you have the French, who have colonised part of America. And basically, the old war is still continuing on, which had been happening for the best part of like 500, 600 years between the English and the French. Um, but we were just fighting overseas somewhere. We're fighting in America this time. Um, and some Indians was, were sympathetic towards the French side, most by the sins of things. I don't know how factually accurate this is. Yeah. Were sympathetic towards the English side. Um, so the, the, Her the Huron tribe, um, of which Magua is supposed to be one of... Uh, are, are kind of sympathetic towards the French although he has infiltrated the British side under the guise of he's a different uh, whatever tribe is sympathetic to the English yeah because when he when he turns on him I did an air punch because I just couldn't wait to see some of them English pricks get messed up couldn't wait to see some of your fellow countrymen gutted yeah totally absolutely so it's great <laughs> So yeah, he kind of leads an ambush, um, which then leads to a load of his tribes and kind of run out and go berserk, almost like goes kill everyone. Um, obviously, after these two women who are just cowering in the corner, um, like you would, I suppose, to be honest, because it's pretty brutal. You got these guys, um, and then Daniel Day Lewis and the two guys he's with—they kind of save them, don't they? Yes. He's um. They, they, like, when we see them earlier, their frontiersmen friends are coerced into fighting for the British because they are technically British people that are now Americans. They're coerced to do it on the proviso that if anything happens to their villages, their settlements, the British will relinquish the, the kind of control over them. And they can go back and, and save their families and their towns and their crops, etc. And whilst most of them sign up to do it, Daniel Day-Lewis and crew decide that they don't want any part of that and they're just going to continue on with the trapping and catching and getting themselves all prepared for the winter and they stumble across this event happening and obviously ride in to save the day um, with that dramatic music, which apparently Andy doesn't like. Uh, no. <laughs> this must have been a long movie for you, Andy. Not as long as it should have been it was meant to be three hours wasn't it originally yeah we're going to get into that there's fucking three versions of this movie out there and potentially a fourth which no one will ever see Michael Mann must just have issue with making a movie under two hours it must just be like why make a movie for under two hours when I can make a three hour movie not yeah, understanding you would think at this point you would understand that studios don't want three hour movies yeah well apparently the studio execs have to send like a couple of guys in just to keep telling him to move along when he like would set up a shot and then do about fifty takes, and they just go, hey, Michael, can we can we just move on now, mate? So yeah, it's obviously just a thing he does. And I think it's that perfectionist thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
that you get, uh, like with David Fincher, apparently he's really like renowned for it, and Stanley Kubrick as well, aren't they? Just keep shooting and shooting and yeah. shooting. Sometimes really mundane shit that doesn't really matter. It's, they just become a bit obsessed with. It's like I, I went to see, um, this is off topic, but I went to see Nocturnal Animals, um, I think it was last week, or it was the week before, um, possibly yeah. last week, and I thought it was an amazing movie. I, I really, really liked it. I thought it was one of the best kind of noirish crime thrillers I'd seen in, a, in quite a while. Cool. But Tom Ford uh, kind of wrote it and directed it, and Ford's known for attention to detail, and you can see it in this movie. It yeah. is meticulous to the point of almost some shots feel sterile in the way that they've been like actually crafted and constructed, and I'm cool with that. But then I read a lot of reviews where people that it's shot within an inch of its life. You know what I mean? It's almost like the soul of the movie's been strangled out by the way it has been shot. Um, and I didn't feel that way at all. I was just like, this is a guy doing, you know, his craft. This is his style. It's like an artist. Some artists are kind of sloppy and, they, you know, they, they, a lot of shade or a lot of shadow, whatever. And others are just meticulous and pinpoint. And that's just the style. And man's that sort of director. Once again, I, I love it how studios are prepared to bankroll them. But then, you know, like, Without speaking to each other, you know, they're like, "What do what do we know about that?" His previous movies, or oh, well, they always ran over, right? And they were always like an hour long. He's our man for this one. What do you mean we're running <laughs> over? What do you mean? Yeah, we're... A lesson. yeah no one ever learns a lesson. And it's funny because I think after this movie, they back off a bit because like the movies after the Mohicans are all about two hours plus, um, especially when you move into Heat. He's a long movie. Um, yeah, it's rolling for nearly three hours. I think it's about two fifty or something. Yeah, like that. and I, I get the feeling that that's, you know, you get the success. He finally gets to the set, the success that he's really craved, and I would say deserved. And at that point, he starts calling the shots a bit, and it makes you wonder. He like we'll get to that in, in the next episode, but he is a long movie. It doesn't feel long when you're watching it, and the story flows yeah. really, really well. So it makes you wonder if. The longer cuts of man's films, you know, his ideal cuts, are the are the way we should be viewing them. Um, although I would say I would struggle with a three-hour version of Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I don't know what's taken out. I mean, I don't know if I prefer a three-hour cut of the Last of the Mohicans. It's a bit more development and stuff because I really just couldn't relate to anybody in this. I think mainly because all the English and the Americans are just all a bunch of wankers. There's literally not one likable character. Yeah. Amongst the whole fucking lot of them. Um, obviously, Daniel Day Lewis is good. He's always good. Um, but to be honest, for me, like I, just, I think anyone could have played that part. I don't think it's a, a part that's particularly. Yeah, like, but I think D- Day Lewis at this point is not the kind of auteur actor that we all associate him as. If you know no. what I mean, I think he do- he does this movie, and I think after you know after kicking out and doing a bit of a a bit of Last of the Mohicans, he then starts to really throw himself into the kind of more challenging roles. Um, I know, like, My Left Foot is just, it's like one or two years before this, and that's the one that really puts him as, this guy's a phenomenal actor, look at his commitment yeah. and all the rest. This is, you know, and he'd done things like with a, a, room to, a Room with a Few and stuff like that before, but, I mean, after, you know, after doing... 
last of the Mohicans, we get powerhouse performances like the Crucible, you know, Gangs of New York, There Will Be yeah. Blood. And he spaces out his performances. He doesn't do them like back to back, but every no. single one of them's like, you know, this is an incredible performance. And it's. I think it comes. I think that he's almost bankrolled on some level from doing, you know, his work on Last of the Mohicans. I would agree with you. He, to me. He's not actually the natural choice for me in terms of who I would have in that role either. I think he's good in it. I don't, I don't, but he's a great actor. I think he's good in the role. I don't think he's the make or break value of this movie though. I think, you know, I think you could probably change the actor here to, to someone else and it would probably still, you wouldn't lose anything. Let's put it that way. No, I think I expected him to be something quite different because I probably watched this film when I was a kid mm -hmm. I literally don't remember it anything about it at all this is probably the first time I watched it in maybe 25 years or something probably, it probably came on the telly like a few years after it was out um, so I think I just expected because I've seen him in other things to be such a like, powerhouse performance I think I was kind of expecting that from this and I didn't get it and it was just kind of like you know he's fine you know he fills the role and he kind of does what he needs to do I don't really feel there's any chemistry between him and the lead woman um, yeah it's, it's weird because she she is an actress I you know what like you know when you see a actor do a role of some description whatever it is and in that role the the put forward a performance which you ultimately associate with that person you know what I mean so from that point onwards you will always like Hopkins is a great example Anthony Hopkins to me regardless what he does as many roles as he has Anthony Hopkins to me will always be Hannibal Lecter that's that's who he is and that's where I come in with Madeline Stowe because she plays such a kind of prominent role this evil kind of almost wicked stepmother in the the TV show, the ABC TV show Revenge. Yes, I watched Revenge. Yes, you're laughing at me now. Yes, I liked it. I watched all three seasons of it, even up to the point that I got cancelled. Um, well, are you recommending that to me or anyone listening? Revenge? Yeah. Oh, Revenge is fucking hilarious. It's the most over-the-top nonsense ever. So let me set the stage for you, Andy. Let's see if I can tickle your fancy with it, right? So in Revenge... <laughs> We have this kind of powerhouse family um, at the, 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 the Hamptons. This is, you know, they, they basically are the, the, the preeminent family that go to summer at the Hamptons. And um, this, this kind of strange blonde girl moves in to this beach house just down from their, you know, palatial palace on top of the hill overlooking yeah. the ocean. And... Um, she moves in and we find out that she's some sort of, you know, she's inherited a lot of money from, from her dead family and she strikes up a relationship with Madeline Stowe's son and from the moment she meets her, you know, Madeline Stowe's like, something's off about this girl and we find out that she used to live in that house um, when she was a, like a little girl and basically yeah. her dad worked for you know that Madeline Stowe's husband's company, um, and was basically set up to take the fall for this huge terrorist act that involved it with a plane exploding, um, and you know her dad was locked up, ultimately died in jail, and she 
would you know ended she up livid. she she ended up in like juvie and stuff like that over in in America and has set this huge overarching revenge plan for like fifteen years and this is like step one as they're moving back. Like old this. boy. Yeah, oh it's oh it's, it's like old boy minus the incest. Um and that's a bit of a spoiler if you've never seen Old Boy. I apologise. Um, but yeah, it's so it's it's, <laughs> it's like old, <laughs> it's like it's like Old Boy, but if it was like it, it's just so cheesy. It's so so cheesy. And then there's a there's a bit in, in the show where it's revealed that she's trained she's trained by ninjas, and it's Andy. I can't stress it. Like every time you think you're like, this is the most ridiculous. Why am I watching this? this is totally ridiculous. The next two episodes come along and a bombshell will drop and you're just like who's writing this show it is like they just they just anything they want to fucking do and I would say watch it it's cheesy and you'll get no value from it at all um, <laughs> and it kind of feels like it was kind of written by the folk that did like Dallas um, oh my god but it's <laughs> but it's it's there's something like me and my wife were addicted to it. Like we we watched the whole first season, in like a weekend, and there's like twenty odd episodes or something. Jesus, it's ridiculous. Uh, if you're ever at a loose end, shove on a bit of revenge and come back to me. But Madeline still plays an evil character in that. No, there's like sixty episodes. No wonder she's like set into your mind as somebody else. Oh, she's like she is like the most odious, horrendous individual ever. And then coming back, I had not realised that Madeline Stowe was the, the, the kind of female lead in this movie. So coming yeah. back to it and hearing her speak soft and compassionate, the two things just don't marry up to me at all. I think You're just waiting for her to put a kill on someone. Yeah, totally. The, the whole movie. Um, the, the, you know, the closest she got to being vicious was when she breaks that, that major's heart. Um, and even then, I was like, "That's kind of tame." Your your character. He will revenge. not take the hint. That guy. He no. looks like Ross Kemp from Extras. Doesn't he? When he's holding up in that gear. He's, oh, look at your little shiny buttons and that. The, yeah, like uh, she, let me, um, let me yeah, just say, guy. let me just say, Andy, that as a negative against this movie, I will agree with you that I don't think the casting at all in this movie is good. I think out with. The is guy the casting that, a problem? I don't. The guy that plays weird. Magua or whatever his name is is brilliant. He is. A, he's the best thing about it. He's by, by far the best thing about it. No, the casting in this movie though is not great. I don't think it has to be great. To be honest with you, people are playing. They're playing kind of typecast roles which are ingrained into cinema. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea of the frontier and pioneers and cowboys and Indians and all this stuff is, you know, very prominent in American cinema. So they're kind of playing into stereotypes, which is why I don't think you really... Like, you think about John Wayne. John Wayne's arguably the most successful, you know, Western actor of all time. Or maybe even Clint Eastwood. You can't sit there and tell me that either one of them are actually great actors. No, With the range. They just play the role that they... Are good at playing, which is tough men, really yeah, well. It's like Schwarzenegger and The Rock, and that is like you know, it's it's an it's it's almost like a, a it's a character, right? And it's a, rather than a performance, isn't it? You know, exactly. They just embody that. This film, like, 
It's a difficult one because it makes me kind of realise it's literally that. Catal- I mean, not not just this film, but just the more films I watch recently, especially like some of the more modern Hollywood stuff, just makes me realise that literally characters are everything. If you've not got good characters in a film, obviously you, you need other stuff as well. But if you know that's the one thing a film will absolutely fall down on every single time, regardless yeah. of how strong it is in every other area. If you yeah. haven't got the good characters then fuck off, I'm literally not interested in the film. And this film just hasn't got any good characters, apart from that, uh, you know, the, the what's his name? Magua. Ma- Ma- Magua, whatever. He's, he's brilliant. He is the epitome of evil villains. Yeah, he's basically, like, there's about 30 of him in Apocalypto. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's every, he's, he's, there's like a li- every single fucking horrible character in Apocalypto, there's a little bit of every one of them kind of in this guy. Yeah. And um, it's just a shame there's only one of him. Yeah, because, I think... And, uh, and what's interesting is when you hear his story, you know, he's not... Right, he's maybe taking his revenge to like an extreme level, like the TV show Revenge. <laughs> but when he when you finally hear his story, his, you know... His wife, his kids, well, sorry, his kids were butchered at the hands of English forces, his village burned down. His wife believed him to be dead, so she remarried, um, and he lost the honour of his tribe, which is why he's doing what he's doing. So, you know what I mean? So, from from that point of view, he's a villain, but I kind of, I kind of see where he's coming from. I'm like, you're a bad guy, yes, but you're a bad guy only through the very squinty lens of this movie. You know, this movie could easily be reversed and this could be the story of a man infiltrating, you know, a, a group of, of you know, enemy flanks to take out the people that murdered his... You know, it could be a revenge story from the other side and it would equally... It would be just as compelling to me, um, but yeah, I would agree with you. I think he's he's probably the best actor or best character in the movie. But like yeah. I say, I don't think necessarily in terms of. Right, let's put our cards on the table. Right, let, let, let me just quickly jump through the rest of the synopsis, and I feel we're gonna. I feel there's a lot we're agreeing on here, but there's a lot that we're not agreeing on. Yeah. And I don't think there's much separating what we don't agree on either. It's just how we come down on them. So basically, you know, Magua infiltrates the, you know, the English camp. His people take out the escort for Madeline Stone, her sister, to they're they're going they're going up to her father's fort, um, and they take them all out. Except just in time, Daniel Day Lewis and his family show up. They rescue them, take them up to the fort. We find that this fort is being pummeled by the French, like absolutely destroyed by the French. Um, and the French have used this Magua as this infiltrator to kill off all the requests for help, as well as um, take out the, the the scout letter which said, "Do not send my daughters up to the fort." And so basically. We, we move through, there's a bit of you know, to and fro and all the English in this movie are awful. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis kind of falls in love with Madeline Stowe's character, she kind of falls in love with him. It's a forbidden romance. Um, it's a forbidden romance with the guy she was kind of betrayed to, she's not even, she's not for him anyway. Because he's, he's a, a dick. Really, 
There's a really pathetic bit at the beginning where he says, look, I know you don't really fancy me and I know we really haven't got anything in common, but maybe that will come with time. Yeah, like, he says we have a friendship. No, and a, like, a friendship is like... And he, he's right, all relationships are built somewhere on friendship, but the, the spark needs to be there, mate. Uh, but I think that's... One, there's nothing there. And you sitting there... Being a pathetic little loser, basically begging us to give you a chance, he's not going to make a drop a nick. But you, I, I don't know if I don't know if maybe that's how romance was back then, Andy. Maybe well, it was just a lot what, easier. Funny, right? Because I watched, I watched the trailer for Skull Island earlier, and it just reminded me of um, the original King Kong, uh-huh. where basically she meets a guy and they're getting married by the time they finish the boat trip, which is just a couple of hours. <laughs> They're literally like he proposes within about an hour. It's mental. Maybe um, that's just a yeah, easier time. Were, yeah, things were very different then, I'm sure. Uh, but this guy just yeah, fucking lived it, mate. No. So you can understand why Daniel Day Lewis, quite handsome, quite badass, has already saved her life. Yeah, uh, you can understand why she's, uh, you know, why she likes him. We kicked the knees, saying humming a humming a humming a. Um, but basically. Um, <laughs> The, the fort gets attacked again by the French this time with much more heavier arsenal now. Um, the French negotiate a peace, a peace deal for surrender of the British. Basically all they ask is that they surrender the fort, they're allowed to march back to England, hopefully using a boat somewhere along those lines because that's a long march underwater. Um, <laughs> basically he, the, the French general permits them all to do this. And Magua is not happy at all because he's like that. The the parents of these two girls are, you know, the, the parent is the guy that did this horrible thing in my village. I, I need vengeance. I need to rip his beating heart from his chest, eat it in front of him after telling him that I will murder his children to destroy his seed. Yeah. And I'm like, that, that is how, that is how, ladies and gentlemen, that's how you proclaim vengeance right there. You know, like, see when you're like that, you know, see tomorrow, I'm not talking to him. That's, that's shite vengeance. You know what I mean? That's not even vengeance. This is how you get vengeance on your enemies. Um, and basically the, the French guy being the way he is, French in this movie, uh, is like that. Listen, I have given them my word for safe passage. However, my fear, just thinking out loud, is that maybe they go to a different fort and I have to fight them again, which isn't really what I want to do and whilst when they march away they are no longer my concern so Magua reads between the lines he's like I've got you so as they're all marching away um, we get one of the big scenes in this movie which is basically all of Magua's people the Huron Indians all come out the, the woods and start butchering everyone including Madeline Stowe's dad tears his heart out after saying by the way do you know what's pretty cool about that scene actually is like one guy just runs out and just like it's like leathers a guy in the neck with like a, a tomahawk thing. Yeah, and there's almost that like weird ripple down the line of nobody knows that's happened. And yeah. Why would you? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're marching probably you know two, two abreast, and there's probably like a few hundred men. And yeah, and just the odd random guy just comes like out of the forest and just you know hits into everyone. So if you're like 10, 10 20 people away. You've not got through that's happened. That's kind of cool. That that was like one of my favourite bits in the movie. I thought there was like a really that was so eerie. Yeah, of almost that shockwave of what's happening. Like you know, like the energy changes, like the energy in the line. Almost yeah. like they know, something's wrong, but they don't really know what. I thought that was pretty cool. I like that. 
I also like the fact that the there's a Michael Mann attention to detail in here as well. With the we can see we can see the muskets go off in the distance, but the sound takes time to resonate to the camera, which is far away. Yeah, I really no, like. Great. Yeah, the old uh, speed of sound being yeah. different from the speed of light. No, that's really cool. That. Really, really good attention to detail. This seems brilliant, and um, obviously Daniel Day Lewis manages to get free. Um, and he manages to once again get Madeline Stone, her sister, and the obnoxious major guy that we don't like, and his family, and they all make their way down to the canoes, and they basically escape in canoes and hide under a waterfall, which is once again one of the iconic scenes of the movie. Um, and the the Indians find them. Yeah, apart from the really bad, weird matte painting CGI waterfall thing. Yeah. <laughs> It's so weird. I don't know what what's going on there. <laughs> You're it's lucky. like it's like you know sometimes you see a waterfall where it's frozen over uh-huh. and there's no water. It's like that, and they've like they're almost like digitally mapped, like a weird kind of almost. It's looked like a matte painting that they're just shaking really fast. I, I wonder if it's just the noise. I, I think you can't shoot under a waterfall and get actors to speak. You wouldn't be able to hear it. No, no, but it's, it's the outside shot of the waterfall. Oh, right, I see what you're saying, so it's not the inside shot. No, no, it's, it's the outside shot of the waterfall to kind of show you the waterfall, and then it, like the camera goes behind it, and that's fine. But like the shot of the actual waterfall itself is some really weird, like, com- composite kind of weird matte painting that just looks like it's vibrating really So you really watched fast. it in high def. I didn't watch it in high def, so I didn't yeah, pick so up on wonder if that's what... Yeah, I wonder if that's one of those things that is not aided by high death. Um, Basically, the Indians find them. They come down to take the two daughters away. Daniel Day-Lewis does his famous, you know, I will find you scene. And then him, his uh, adopted stepdad and his brother-in-law, or his his stepbrother, all jump out into the waterfall. The the two sisters and the, the major get carried away. They're being tracked by Daniel Day-Lewis and crew. Um, Magua takes them to the Huron village, proclaims himself as mighty war leader, um, and Daniel Day-Lewis shows up and is like, actually, he's not that great because this victory he had was on the basis of, you know, a surrender by someone else and then they attacked him unarmed. So it's hardly, it's hardly, you know, this this great thing that he's done here as great war leader when he just attack people that really were surrendered um, and they get into this whole thing and Magua lets his like his aspirations for power slip and basically it, it seems that he is more of the white man which is in complete juxtaposition to Daniel Day-Lewis's character who is more respectful of the, the Indian way um, yeah. and it's the it's the kind of polar opposite of those two characters it is agreed that um, one of the daughters will be essentially executed um, and one of them will be given to Magua's um, tribe uh, and the British guy will get sent home and uh, you know because we don't need any more British blood in our hands even though he's the one that deserves to die out of everyone um, trust me when this guy goes up in flames I'm loving it and um, Daniel Day-Lewis can go in peace because he's that is the only redeeming thing that he obviously del- he puts himself forward to be killed rather than Daniel Day-Lewis he kind of yeah. redeems himself there as much as a prick he is yeah yeah he, he kind of he, it looks like well Daniel Day-Lewis then says that I will take her place you can take me and then he translates it to I will take 
Daniel Day-Lewis's place that you don't know that he offered. So he gets hooked up uh, to be burned alive. Daniel Day-Lewis gives him the mercy shot. And then we're basically... We have... Um, like Hawkeye's brother... Uh, the the you know the son of the, the the chief of the Mohicans, he's in love with the other sister and he's desperately trying to trap him down. He fights off against Magua, who royally fucks him up, um, puts him down hardcore style. Um, the sister jumps backwards off a cliff, killing herself because um, she d- doesn't want to live anymore. And then we get this great scene of uh, Genghis Cook just like appearing out of nowhere, and he just. He fucks up Magua like something horrible with that big blue, whatever that is, with like seven spikes and the. He's yeah, he does right. But do you know what? That scene and quite a few of the fight scenes to me it looks so half-hearted. <laughs> I just I, th- I think you know what I think I think modern action movies, not this being an action movie. I think choreography. And action movies have ruined us to what actual... Not true, not true, because it's really fucking good in Braveheart, regardless of what you think of that movie. The, the fucking battle scenes are incredible. Yeah, but the, 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 ba- the battle scenes are choreographed by people that... You know, the people that were consultants on that movie study the exact same ways that combat was done of the time. Like, the, the, the weapons that Scott's held... It was a shield with a knife at the side and you, you use that to block and stab and then rake with your sword. And that was... So that, that makes sense to me because that's a military tactic. Yeah. In the case of this one, this is this is like Native Americans like fighting, like hand-to-hand. And I think it's a lot of their stuff is kind of like make like loud screaming noises and just almost windmill at someone. Um, you know, no, it's, just, it's, it's the execution. I've not got a problem with the fighting style or all right. choreography. It's just the execution of some of the moves by the actors. All oh, right, I see what you're saying. Sorry, I thought you meant the actual fighting. You just no, mean, no, like, the, the fight, actors do it. fine, and it's not all bad. Some of it is really good, but there's some shit... Right, there's a scene in Braveheart, just to... Just to keep You've got a fucking hard-on for Braveheart tonight. It's because you know what upsets me. Uh, it's not, right... <laughs> The reason it is, right, I'm, I'm going to kind of come back to this. The, like, they're three years apart, basically. Um, and for me, this film doesn't hold up for me. We'll get into it with my grade. Not not that I really know this film that well, but looking back on it, I just, I'm just i just not that impressed with it. Whereas Braveheart, for me, is a movie that totally holds up. Um, and there is a scene in Braveheart where the guys, like, in the background, because once you've watched Braveheart as many times as I have, you start to not just look at the people in the foreground, you, you kind of look the people in the background and there's a scene where two people they look like they're doing a dry run at about a fifth speed of what they should be doing it at and it's obviously a massive fuck up that nobody noticed oh there's a couple of, there's a couple of peaches there's a scene where uh, Mel Gibson is running down with his giant sword out we yeah, cut then to the English thing and then it's yeah yeah there's, oh, there's a lot there's a lot of fucking continuity problems in that so there's that one, but this one, it's literally two guys that look like they're playing pitter-pat with their swords. And I think it, I think maybe they are literally doing a dry run and they don't realise they've called action, because it's quite in the background and it really it really sticks out, especially on a big screen. Um, but for me, quite a few of the scenes here, it's like they're just not giving it full whack. Uh-huh. It's, like, 
it's, it's almost like they're doing the, the run through before they go at it full pelt sort of thing. A bit like, you know, when you see like a, a row of dancers doing an audition and some of them are really fucking sharp yeah. and powerful and they hit the beat and their movement lands on the beat perfectly. And then some of the dancers are like, it's a bit half-arsed and they're not as sharp and like they're not flicking their limbs. It's that. And I just noticed that quite a bit. And the scene where the, the older guy kills um, Magua mm-hmm. and he does like a spin, it's really weak his spin and there's no way that spin would be enough to take that guy out and he'd, he'd, he'd just move out of the way because he, t- he telegraphs it a mile away and it's really like it looks like an old man doing a turn and then they obviously realize it looks bad because they edit it and it's done in like two a split shot so like him kind of winding up to do the spin is one shot and then midway to where the spin where the where it like connects and hits the guy is a different shot and it just looks shit <laughs> do you like Highlander? Uh, it's alright <laughs> I knew you were going to say that it's one of your issues in Highlander that everyone in that movie doesn't really know how to hold a sword <laughs> well that's one of the things and the other thing for me is right. if you're talking about efficiency of movement back flipping your way through a car park is not the way to do it sir no, I, I, is- in fairness in the novel that guy is like a coward the guy's fighting's a coward, and he uses he's apparently he does a lot of that stuff to distract. You know, he's like a, he's the sort of guy that would he's like a he's almost like a jackal or a hyena, and um, right. that you know it's all showmanship. He's not a great swordsman at all, but as soon as you fuck up, he will be in there, shanking okay. <laughs> like you like a bastard. So yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like. Um, a lot of, and this is not me being sexist, this is just fucking the way it is, I'm afraid. Oh, when you see women, <laughs> That's a bold statement, Andy, you can't say that. Well, you know, you'd probably agree with me when I say it, though. you know what I'm going to say, yeah, right. When you see women fighting in films, they very rarely know how to throw a, a realistic-looking punch. Um, Sharon Stone in Total Recall, <laughs> really fucking awkward, and, and it's really rare that for me that that looks right and I'm not saying all blokes know how to throw a punch but it's just a lot of the time it looks more convincing and a lot of female roles where they fight yeah it looks awkward like they don't really know how to hold their limbs when they're throwing a punch I'm sorry if like our female listeners are going to kick off about that but that's just something I've noticed over years let let me let me put the the like Someone like Sharon Stone, I would argue, possibly shouldn't be throwing punches in movies because yeah. she's a great actress and she looks she looks attractive on camera. The counterpoint to that is you can have someone like Ronda Rousey in one of the Expendable movies and she's fucking awful, but she can throw a punch. I will take the can act over you know can act but can't throw a punch over can throw a punch can't act any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah, just to redress the balance. Like some of my favourite <laughs> films have got really strong female performances. You know, like the Terminator film, the Aliens film, the Kill Bill films. Yeah, that's women that really know how to fight. And it looks convincing. I've not got an issue with women fighting in films <laughs> at all. You're safe. People. No one's no one's going to shout at us, Andy. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure they're going to see through your sexist, chauvinistic opinions. They still love you. I hope so because I'm really not like that at all. I'm just trying to kind of make a point that. In this film, I know exactly. I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming poorly, from. Poorly, poorly executed fight maneuvers, and it and and when the battle scenes are so kind of climactic and the battle scenes are so important and climactic to the you know to they've been set up obviously you know 20 30 minutes before they actually happen. 
when someone's not convincingly swinging a sword or throwing a punch or throwing a kick or wielding a tomahawk, I just think, fucking hell, like, get up a bit earlier and just do a bit more practice <laughs> when you choreograph it. I really don't think there's an, any excuse for that in a movie. You know, you've got to make everything look convincing. It's, it's, as, it's as important as you're acting in it when it's a fight scene because you're not speaking in a fight scene. All you've got to go on is the performance of your body, and if you can't get that right... yeah then you should have practiced in the mirror a bit more or do you know what I mean? So yeah, this, this film for me that rests really on its battle scenes because it's quite a slow plodding film really. Um, and when the battle scenes come, it is really exciting. They just don't work because a lot of it just doesn't look that good. See, I don't think this movie rests on its battle scenes at all. <laughs> I think the, ba- really the battle good. scenes are just to our backdrop for what's actually the the movie I think the, the what the movie's about is this relationship, regardless whether or not the movie does it right. But this kind of this romance between uh, Madeline Stone and Daniel Day Lewis in the movie, I think it's first and foremost. Which is weird because I said to you, I think it was on maybe two episodes ago that when I watched this movie when I was much younger. That was the thing that stuck out to me was like how sappy and romantic the movie was, and I was kind of thinking I'm older now, coming down to watch this movie, I might take more away from it, and I ultimately land at exactly the same position. I think this is essentially it's a rom- it's a romantic drama, yeah, with a backdrop of war. You know, the war is in the backdrop, and as such, it's almost... I, I, I can totally see where you're coming from. And yes, I think the action sequences could could pop more. That I think that's a great analogy, actually, between, like, you know, dancers that are, you know, are just... They have, like, they, they, they don't necessarily... They're practised to the nth degree, so on, on the day that they have to do something, it's sharp as a razor. Um, I think it's great comparison and there is a lot of sloppiness in here some of it's good like you know that you know the two the two like indian guys that run out and that scene we're talking about where they're kind of all marching almost single file and they just run out of the blue and just they're really convincing i'm not saying that everyone's not that great it's just some of it's just really weak and you know i think i just notice it probably more the british actors than the actors that are portraying the indian guys yeah um and I know they're probably it's because they're not too okay with hand-to-hand combat. But well, yeah, they, they were. They, you were trained to shoot a gun, and that was really the close hand-to-hand combat. That's what I love about that. Like, there's certain scenes in this movie that I just think are great. See, the surrender sequence mm. is fucking hilarious, but also it, it goes to show the the difference in in cultures. Or this idea that you know. Like the Native American war was, you know, very close, very personal, hand to hand combat, and all the rest. It didn't stop until your enemy was dead and you scalped them. And in the case of this one, you have two people with all the pomp and circumstance of their their, their behind them, you know, bowing majestically in front of oh each other. Oh my god, Duncan! I literally pissed myself when that French guy did that like weird figure of eight with his hat. I but. They mentioned it earlier on in the movie that, you know, the British had so little regard for the French as... I don't know why, because for a long period of history, they kicked the ass of the English, like, majorly. Um, But, yeah, there's this idea of, you know, they're all... They're not warriors, they're all artists, and, you know, Mm. they shag around and stuff like that. They're they're not fighters, they're not, you know, seasoned warriors like the British. Um, 
and you see that in their interactions, the way they speak to each other. It's all very civil and it's all very cordial and it's all very complimentary of each other. You know, had it been a, another commander, this fort may have fallen, you know, weeks ago. But you, you have, you've done your duty and all that. You know, all these sort of things, that, like veiled compliments. Um, and then you just see how the American Indians handle things, and it's in complete mm. contrast. Yeah. It was a figure of eight with his hat and then the little curtsy thing. I just thought, you fucking poncy twats. The <laughs> lot of you. Jesus. How embarrassing. But at the time, it probably wasn't embarrassing. Well, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for him. I'm embarrassed for him 400 years later. Uh... I've just gone, why are you, are you, what are you doing? Is there a fly? Why are, you, why are you drawing a figure of eight in the air with your hat and then curtsying? Like, what are you doing? Like, shake hands or something, fellas. I mean, <laughs> like, it, it just makes you hate the characters. But, I, yeah, I don't necessarily... It's weird to... I don't necessarily think you're supposed to like any of the characters. I think you're... I think what the movie is supposed to try and do, and I don't necessarily think it does it all that well, but it's supposed to wrap you up in this kind of forbidden relationship between Hawkeye and Korra. I mean, mm. I think that's what I, th- I, th- I may be totally wrong, but I think that's why. Why would you have a score which is so dramatic? You know, yeah. uh, why? Why would you have like shots with them like under the waterfall? If anything, not you know, and I will find you, and all these sort of things are are purely put there to you know, to make people swoon and look at their partners and realise that would their partner jump off a waterfall to go and save them? Probably not. Um, <laughs> so you know what I mean? That's that's. That's how I see the movie, and I think that everything in the background is just, on some level, just filler. Mm. You know, the war is the war is just a backdrop, and I would I, that doesn't necessarily forgive it for being poorly executed. I think if you're going to be someone of the caliber of Michael Mann, I think you need to. He's had attention to detail to everything else, so why why should certain fight scenes or whatever not look genuine? Is, yeah. is a great question. I think it's a great. I think I actually think it's it's something that I'd never. I pay so little attention to Andy that it doesn't bother me at all. Um, you know, I think the reason I'm paying so much attention to it, and the reason I say how important the fight scenes are, is because it's literally the only thing that's that kept me interested in this movie. Yeah, you weren't you weren't connected to anything else, so the war bits are where you're trying to latch on to, and as a result of that, you can you're picking out all the holes that are in there. And yeah. I, I, to- I, once again, totally, totally see where you're coming from. Um, I think there's a couple of things about this movie. Do I think it's one of the best Michael Mann movies? No. Uh, I think it's a necessary movie in his career, though, because without this one, you don't get heat. Um, and I'm not even spoiling anything. I watch heat fairly regularly I've not seen it in a couple of years but up until a couple of years ago I watched it like every other year uh, yeah. it's a movie I know inside out and it's a movie that I fucking love like like love as in top 10 movies of all time um, mm. for me that sort of level of love I think it's a great movie so this movie to me is like a stepping stone to like we can give this guy bigger budgets we can let him do anything like that he's going to turn in a movie that's going to make money and the, the big, the key thing about this one is this one is, this is a for even though the term doesn't exist yet, this is a blockbuster movie mm. in 1982. It makes a lot of money. 
Um, oh yeah, winning a lot of awards. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, 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 and this is his blockbuster movie. Manhunter was never doing that. Thief was never doing that. And by God, the Keep was never doing that. So this is his yeah. first like step into the big leagues, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's rough. It's there's there are elements that I don't think work well at all. I really like the score. I I, I know that you don't. Um, but I, I think the score is one of the most important bits of this movie. It's one of the most memorable bits of this movie as well. Um, I think the casting's all right. Uh, in comparison to some of his other castings and some of his other movies, I think it's probably the weakest so far. Uh, I think the casting and something like the Keep is much better than this movie. Um, and I think Daniel Day-Lewis is all right in it. I don't think he's like amazing in it, but he's a he's a good actor and he turns in a a fairly fairly banal appearance, uh, but it works for that character. The character's not exactly a guy who's intensely passionate or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's all right. I think um, I think the the romance side of things could be done better, but I think this movie pitches itself on that. Um, so that's how I view the movie. I view the movie very much as this is a this is like this huge romantic story, and it just so happens that it's set against the backdrop of this particular this particular war or struggle that's happening at the time. And yes, it could be a bit better and it is very Hollywood it's so so Hollywood um, so yeah I don't I, I, maybe you think I love this movie more than I do I don't know I, I think I think it's I think it's a it's a decent popcorn movie it's something you can sit down and munch away some popcorn to not really pay that much attention to at all and yeah. you're not going to lose like see if I lifted up my phone and spent like 15 minutes scrolling through Facebook and then brought my attention back up to the movie, I wouldn't feel like I'd lost so much information that it would detracted from how this movie ends. You know exactly how this movie's going to end from pretty much 15 minutes into it. So, uh, yeah. What, what about you? Yeah, I mean, the main thing there is, I think it just reminded me of one absolute vile fucking bunch of cunts the British were and kind of always <laughs> have been since the beginning of time, haven't they? Just raped and pillaged their way across the world trying to make it there just makes me fucking sick. So that, like, put me instantly on a bad footing because I just thought, ugh, ugh, wankers. Um, and then, like, because I was really looking forward to this, like, I wait, like, the reason, I mean, the re- the reason we're kind of delayed in this coming out um, is because I was waiting for the Blu-ray, um, and then Rates like did just kind of <laughs> decided we we went on a on a day out. So the day that we were going to record, we didn't. Um, but yeah, it's it's me waiting for the Blu-ray. So I thought this film's going to be epic. It's going to be amazing. I have to have it on Blu-ray. Um, so I was really looking forward to it. I was like so ex- like you know totally wanted to get into the characters and immerse myself because I thought the score is probably going to be great. It's going to be well shot. I imagine the characters are going to be great. Yeah, I was just like not really impressed with any of it. Like I know you're not really supposed to like either like the English or the French or the Americans or any of them because they are a bunch of arseholes and I think they're deliberately meant to be portrayed that way. Um, and when you kind of feel as sort of negatively as I do about the whole like I mean I really don't subscribe to like patriotism, you know, being patriotic to your country or any kind of traditions. I'm really just not into that kind of shit at all. So, you know, when the film opens with them basically trying to force, you know, Hawkeye not to fight for the country and do the right thing for the king and all that, I'm just like, all right, fair enough, that's annoying, but, you know, there's probably going to be a different group of people that I'm going to really be able to get behind. And there's not, 
Mm-hmm. Like Hawkeye really is kind of the only guy that you get into. And then obviously as you hear sort of uh, Magua's story, um, you know, because he is a villain, but he's a good character and he's got an interesting story and, and he's very brutal. And that's interesting for me. And if for sort of otherwise quite a pedestrian movie, when he's on the screen, I'm really paying attention. And then when he's kind of off the screen, I'm really not that bothered again. Um, the love story, I just didn't really see any chemistry between them two at all. I didn't really find her that attractive as a, as a person. I mean, to look at, she's nice, but I couldn't really see why he's that into her other than the fact that there's probably into slim pickings where he is. So, do you know what I mean? And the same thing with her as well. Like, he's not that magnetic in this movie. Like, her other option is a guy that looks like a fucking young... Ross Kemp in a really bad wig and a terrible like poncy tunic thing so you can kind of see why she's into Daniel Day-Lewis but you can't understand why she'd really go for him like you know in, in any other situation than this there's no spark there for me um, the score was alright it was it just didn't kind of you know for me a score of a movie is kind of what you know what gets you know what can put a lot of the hairs on my arm standing up sometimes there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of films that, where the score does that this one just was almost like a by the numbers score it just didn't stand out for me if you like played this score to me in a week and asked me what film it's from I'd for- I would have forgotten that's Whereas- weird because I think like I've not seen this movie in over a decade and the main theme for this one I know is from Last of the Mohicans like instantly right. instantly, you could play like maybe two or three different tracks from this yeah. score and I know it's from the Last of the Mohicans I think it's the most memorable part of the movie yeah okay um, whereas not, not to go back to it again but Braveheart oh. that is a phenomenal don't care what you think about that movie, you cannot deny that fucking score is incredible. It's um, alright. Come on. Gladiator, <laughs> there's another one. That's an incredible score. You know, they're iconic scores that the film would just not be the same. For me, you could put any score on top of this and it, it wouldn't make any difference to me. It wouldn't make it any better, it wouldn't make it any worse. It just, you could, you could just interchange the score for me. Um, the last 10 minutes is pretty good. I like the fact that Magra kind of gets what's coming to him, um, even though it's kind of badly executed. There's some really nice practical effects, but I like the el- his elbow bones kind of sticking out and stuff, um, which is pretty cool. That kind of, you know, that, that they do that well. Um, yeah, and then you just got kind of the Hollywood ending of them two together. I imagine they'll probably split up in six months. <laughs> Three if she gains weight, as Chuck would say. Oh my god! We, we, we kind of touched on the, the the different versions of the the movie. So yeah, so when it was released in '92, um, the length of the movie was 112 minutes. Um, it was then uh, it was released at this length in the VHS, uh, according to Wikipedia, in the USA. And it was re-edited in length in VHS, uh, oh sorry, on DVD to 117 minutes um, on November 23rd, 1999, which was billed as the Director's Expansion Edition. It was then yeah. re-edited for Blu-ray, which that's the version that you saw, um, in October 5th, 2010, this time billed as the Director's Definitive Cut, uh, which is a length of 114 minutes, so less than the DVD length. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, uh, so, so once again, this is another movie which man has about seven different versions of out there um, to check out. Uh, he kind of likes doing that. I think he likes to revisit these movies in a very non um, George Lucas way. I don't think he's changing too much. He's maybe just chopping some scenes about a wee bit, but not actually changing details of the movie. Um, right, let's let's bring it in then. Um, we have two questions that we like to ask at the end of every single review on Opera Omnia. The first one is to grade the movie out of 10. And then the second question is that of his catalogue of movies up to this point, as of 1992, um, what we consider his best movie to be, as it currently stands, we both still agree that Thief is his best movie. Um, he's, yeah. he's, kinda, he's debut. I've got Thief on Blu-ray. So when, because obviously you got me this, yeah, I have the screener from you, but I've actually bought the proper Arrow version now because there's mm-hmm. loads of special features on. And um, didn't, I mean, obviously I bought it because I want to own it because it's fantastic. But I also bought it. Um, to be honest, it doesn't matter that boy because I could have just watched your screener again. I've, no, I won't lie. I've literally just bought it because I want it. Um, but <laughs> what I'm going to do is the point I'm trying to make is I'm I, I have thief to watch if i find a movie that i think is better than thief oh right so i can then watch thief again and um, because i've only ever seen it once yeah so i imagine to be honest the only one that's probably going to come near it is uh, heat but i haven't seen all of michael mann's movies so i may get a surprise the insiders so, are really strong movie i've not seen it okay. since it came out but the insiders yeah. are really fucking strong movies so so yeah, if I end up coming across a movie that I think is better than Thief, I will then watch Thief again just so I can kind of because obviously that is the main your mind, Yeah, that's clever. That's clever. That's, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a smart move, Andy Blockley. Shrewd Andy um, Blockley. It's just a good excuse to watch Thief again, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, um, right. So let's let's so, yeah, do. That, that's obviously the you know what you're getting to there is that so far Thief has got um, the top yeah. spot. Will this one topple Thief for well, you? Obviously, you know it's not going to for me for what I've been saying, but for you? No, 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 no. Um, I currently, from the first four movies, I would put this one just above the keep and no more. Um, yeah. And that's not, like I said before, not I don't dislike this movie at all. Um, and I know exactly what it's pitching at. There are there are certain things that I think are are not done with the same... Um, the same prowess or the same skill that he did on less budget on earlier movies. Um, this is this is a blockbuster Hollywood movie, and as a result, a lot of that kind of grittiness that you get from a movie like Manhunter or, or Thief is kind of shunted away to the, you know. Yeah, a, maybe that's what I like about it. It's you know, there's a lot of that's just gone. This it's a very polished movie. It's inc- it's incredibly shot. I mean, it really is, and if I can't, it's, it kind of feel like there's a lot of the keep arguments coming up for this. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's, it is incredibly shot. Um, you know, the, the I, I like the score. I know you you don't particularly like the score, and I like the score for for the keep. But ultimately, as a movie overall, um, it's it's middle of the road for me. I don't think it's an amazing movie. It, it, certainly, when it comes to the, the the movies we've already watched, there's at least two movies from his catalogue that I can say I, I prefer over this one um, so yeah it does not does not top the list, he's still at the top of the list for me in terms of score a, a 7 I think I think I'd give it a 7 out of 10 I think I gave The Keep 
I want to say six. I can't remember what. Six. It, yeah, you gave yeah. it six. So, so yeah, I think it's better than the keep. Um, so I would yeah. give it a seven. I think seven's comfortable for me. If I was doing, yeah, seven seven seems right for me. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for the battle scenes and it's kind of as short as they are, and um, they are fairly exciting, even though, like I said, some of the actual fighting itself is not that greatly executed. That you know, it, it is exciting when these kind of savage-looking Red Indian guys with their weapons and their, you know, their painted faces and stuff come out. That that is the best part of the film for me, and that elevates it to a seven. Yeah. It was just going to get a six uh, if it wasn't for those kind of few scenes, and basically, it's it's Magua and his people elevate this to a seven but for me a seven is only it's still only a film that was just okay yeah i wouldn't really recommend it probably unless you know you're really interested in the subject matter oh um, you're interested in entering the competition which we're going to announce uh-huh. after the break <laughs> oh yeah my my uh, my dislike for this movie is somebody else's game if you're into it because <laughs> we're going to do a giveaway yep. of the blu-ray yeah, we're gonna. Which work. has literally been watched once. I mean, you see, uh, you always see stuff for sale on eBay where people go, what, "Watched once, bullshit." But yeah. Anyway, that's what has been. So genuinely, has yeah. just been watched once. Um, so yeah, we'll give it away. Um, yeah, it's a seven. It's just, it's all right. It's pretty vanilla to me. This is not incredible. It's, you know, it's, I would have expected more in the hands of Michael Mann, but maybe it's just an odd thing for him to do to transition from yeah. something. Yeah, doesn't do another man. movie like this. Like in his career from now on, there is not another movie that is like Last of the Mohicans, and he touches back on crime, thriller, you know, espionage, and, and all the rest from this That's point. That's obviously what he's really fucking good at. Yeah, that's what he enjoys doing. This is a movie which I feel, in, like I said, he needs to get this one out of his system. It proves he can work on a bigger scale, it proves that he can get money in from the movie that he makes and as a result of that the next movie's heat so um, yeah we'll take a short break just now when we come back we're closing out the show and letting you know dear listeners how you can win Andy Blockley's only watched once copy of Last of the Mohicans on Blu-ray we're going to be right back right after this hello hello who is this who are you trying to reach I think you've got the wrong number. Do I? I'm going to hang up. Wait, don't hang up. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn when I listen to podcasts. I'm about to listen to a podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Probably the podcast on Haunted Hill. Is that the one with the two guys with the beards? Uh, yeah, Dan and Gav. Most episodes they look at two different horror movies. Each episode they look at a world of the strange, where they look at weird things from around the world. Sometimes they even do special episodes where they look at different genres or directors' discographies and talk about them. Do you have a boyfriend? Maybe. So where can I find the podcast on Haunted Hill? Well, you can go to legionpodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, or just go into iTunes and search for the podcast on Haunted Hill. So, are you going to ask me out? And welcome back. So you've been listening to Opera Omnia. This has been episode number four of season one. We've been looking at the entire back catalogue of Michael Mann. And in episode four, we looked at his 1992 movie, Last of the Mohicans. Me and Andy, even though I sounded more positive than he did, we land on the same grade. So, <laughs> but, yeah. so um, I think that speaks a lot more about how we talk about cinema, Andy. Mm. 
Uh, I think sometimes, I, I think you've said in the past, it always seems like I'm inherently cheery about things at cinema. Um, or, you know, I very seldom say what I dislike about movies um, or what movies I dislike. Uh, I think that may, maybe that comes through in my reviews as well. Maybe you were expecting me to score it higher. Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of thought you were going to convince me this film's better than yours because that's a lot of time what happens when I speak to you. I'm kind of not that it particularly changes my mind on whether I enjoy the film, but you will almost give me a um, newfound almost appreciation for a movie, even though I wasn't that enamoured with it, just because of sort of how passionate and, and logically you speak about the certain aspects of the film. Um, but I was kind of convinced before we started this review that there was nothing you could say that was bad. <laughs> not that it is a bad film and it isn't a bad film. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is finding it. There's a fantastic performance from the guy that plays Magua and all that. Um, it's, it's, it's just not a fucking great movie. Is it, for me, it's, I don't think it's... I mean, it might stand the test of time for people that grew up watching this. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, Thief was a film I'd never seen and it's much, much older than this film. Yeah. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So it's nothing to do with the fact that I, you know, like uh, some some films, you don't need to have watched them through the years to, to appreciate them. You can watch it for the first time ever and think it's absolutely incredible. And I thought that's what was going to happen with this. Um, and unfortunately it didn't. But that's okay, because there's another, there's, there's more amazing films to come. Yeah, there are indeed there are indeed many, many, many more films to I'm, discuss. I'm going to stop saying barnstorm because I never. That's not a word I ever use. I don't know why I started using it. <laughs> I used it the last couple of episodes, oh, we've got a barnstorm. What the fuck does that mean? I, I like how you're just inventing things. Uh, people it's a term. I mean, it must be. I'm, I'm sure I'm not made it up, but but if you have, like, imagine how great you're going to feel if you listen to another podcast and someone uses it. Yeah, I just thought, like, thought, 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 I literally like a little voice in my head went, "Why are you saying that? You never do that." <laughs> you know, say brilliant. We'll go for brilliant. There's brilliant films coming up, and there is. I mean, I was, you know, Michael Mann he is an incredible director, and I don't think I really realised he was until we, I started looking at the list of films that we were going to do for this, yeah, for this series. Like you suggested, Michael Mann. I thought, oh yeah, Heat and, and, and Manhunter, and you know, there's a couple of, like. But it wasn't until you kind of go into IMDb, you go, oh my god, like, you know, there is. I think that's the thing about. I think that's the really interesting thing about doing a show like Opera Omnia. I mean, you could easily start off <clears throat> by picking a director like Scorsese. It would be a long season, but you could do Scorsese and sit there and gush over the the movies the guy's done. But I think sometimes there are directors who shape cinema. And Michael Mann shaped cinema. Scorsese certainly has as well. So Tarantino, etc., have all shaped cinema. But Mann has like definitely shaped cinema, and I don't necessarily think he always gets the credit for doing it. There are a lot of directors that have been influenced by his work, um, yeah. and there's a lot of movies that I just genuinely think are, you know, just like great examples of whatever type of movie they're trying to do uh, from him. And that's that's why he was my first pick. He's not like I remember when I I kind of pitched the idea, even when I was speaking to people about doing like a director and saying Michael Mann, and they were going, "All right, the Heat guy." Oh well, yeah, well he did Collateral as well, and mm. you know he did The Insider, and oh by the way he did Ali, and um, he did you know Manhunter, and he did Thief, and you know it's when you last of the weekends when you start going through the list of movies, it's you realise that you probably have seen a lot more of Mann's work than you realise you have. Mm. 
Um, I, I didn't realise until just now that actually Heat is the next one. I thought there was one more before it. No, no, Heat's next. Heat's next. Oh, shit, sir. Yeah, the next episode, that's what I'm saying, the next episode is literally just going to be me, like, spurting my load consistently over my microphone, constantly telling you how amazing that movie is. The, Probably the, put some fling around it or something <laughs> There will be, I guarantee, at least two or three huge bits where I'm at, like the, the, the bit where they're sitting in the cafe uh, De Niro and Pacino are talking in the cafe um, that end sequence at the airport and the, the actual robbery sequences I think are three of like three of the most important well three of some of the most important shots in cinema history so yeah I'm, I'm going to be the, all over um, the place yeah, next week I've seen it for a couple of years but I just remember that uh, robbery scene oh, being so incredibly tense and exciting it's incredible it's actually like I think I just want to watch it now um, but yeah so that's the next episode um, and then the episode after that I think is The Insider and The yep. Insider's an incredible movie as well it's one of the very few movies that has Russell Crowe in it that I actually like I'm not a big Russell Crowe fan um, at all, but I like him in that movie. So, no, I don't think I've seen it. Have you not? It's very, very, very good. Very, very good. Different change of pace, but in a, in a really good way. Um, I got a lot of attention when it came out. But Andy, you spent some hard-earned cash buying yourself a copy of Last of the Weekends. We found out that you, you didn't enjoy it as much as you thought you were going to, and graciously, you've decided that you want to give it away to a loving home uh, to a listener that listens to this show how pray tell between this episode and the next episode dropping in two weeks time how can our listeners get in with a chance to win this blurry well my thinking is this is not a niche podcast particularly in as much as you don't really need to be a horror fan which is what we normally kind of do obviously you do you know your you podcast on the stairs I've done my big horror little podcast a few episodes we've done all the doing the nasties um, this is a podcast for kind of movie fans in general so I'm thinking a good way to kind of spread the word that this podcast is available is to for people to like and share the post on their own um, pages to hopefully get a few more people interested mm-hmm. So all you really have to do, I'm going to put a post up um, saying, do you want this? <laughs> you just have to like that post and then basically share the page on your own page. Um, and everybody that does that will get an entry. Um, and if you can get your mates to then share that, obviously they'll get an entry. And then we'll just pick a person at random. Nice. Nice. And they will win. Is it region locked? Uh... Well, you, we'll post that. Post that in the competition. Really? Yeah, it's probably not. Um, so yeah, open to sort of American listeners as well. If it isn't region locked, um, we'll, we'll, we'll double check. We'll double check before we'll beforehand, check. and we'll we'll let you know. But yeah, take part in that. You could be in with the opportunity of winning Andy Blockley's very own Last of the Mohicans watched only once. Yeah, Gen- um, genuinely watched once. Genuinely watched once. Um, yeah, I think this feels like a nice a nice place to finish this episode like I say yeah. next week that episode well next time that episode uh, covering heat may run a bit longer just like I say because it's so much it's a longer movie but there's so much to discuss in that but thank you very much for the support uh, thanks for checking out the show I had lots of great feedback on Manhunter some people coming down on the side of me and Andy some people coming back and saying nah I actually prefer Red Dragon over over Manhunter which is your prerogative um, that's the beauty of cinema is we all have differences of opinions and movies that we like and that cater to our tastes 
safe in the knowledge that if they don't care for someone else, they have something else they can enjoy. So, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for all the support on that. Andy, is there anything else you want to say before we mosey on out of here? No, no, I think I'm done. Fantastic. I was going to make some. I was going to make some joke about Daniel Lewis. 15 years, like it was 15 years, and then he started drinking people's milkshake. I can't even remember what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so I won't bother. But yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, yeah, and obviously it's heat. It's the fucking heavy hitter that we've kind of, uh, you know, this is this is the one. This is going to be the main benchmark movie. I think if nothing, I don't know if anything's going to beat heat. It's up there, isn't it? Will Thief, though. For yeah, me, well, this is the thing I'm interested about. Because I'm going to watch him. I'm going to watch him side by side, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'd seen Thief you know a while ago and i'd seen heat you obviously seen heat many many times so i know where uh, until i watch it again obviously i won't have my final yeah i reckon if uh, heat doesn't topple uh the you know off the top spot nothing will so it's it's all down to heat to to kind of get that number one spot next week tense 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 andy would you like to say goodbye to the listeners please goodbye listeners take care everyone Bye. bye